Let us pray. Lord, as we listen to what you're saying to us through this lovely psalm, we pray that you would take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love of you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Do you ever, like me, get really angry when you read headlines, such as one that appeared in the Sunday papers a few weeks ago? Life is golden, it said, for the henchmen of a certain regime, which shall be nameless. A city may be in flames, it went on, but for the three men who built today's regime and for their families, life is sweet, luxurious and safe. One of them apparently divides his time between a nine-bedroomed house in Mayfair and an estate in Arbella. Another lives in a luxurious mansion in Paris. And so it goes on, a story that is replicated in many parts of the world. Do you ever wonder why there appears to be no justice in the world? Or do you know people like a dear Christian friend of mine who's not only struggled with bringing up a disabled child but whose husband has left her, and now she has terminal cancer. And if so, do you ever think, why, Lord? Why her? Or do you ever look at people around you who have no faith at all, and yet seem to sail through life with not a care in the world? And as you wrestle with your faith, and strive to lead the sort of life that you think God is calling you to, do you ever think, Is it worth it? If any of these sort of niggling thoughts have ever crossed your mind, and they certainly have mine, you'd have much in common with Asaph, a music director of King David, and the man who wrote this psalm. Like us, Asaph is saying, something's not quite right. What's going on, Lord? And even... I'm beginning to doubt that you're really in charge, Lord. Is it in vain that I've tried to follow you all my life? He's refreshingly honest. And as he works through these difficult questions, he allows us to share in his thought processes. In big picture terms, just to get the logic of the psalm, because it's quite long, his argument goes as follows. First of all, verse 1, God is good to his people. That's the basic premise on which the psalm lies. But secondly, in verses 2 to 12, experience contradicts this. So thirdly, verse 13 and 14, why bother? Well, fourthly, verses 15 to 20, things are very different seen from God's perspective. Fifthly, this is humbling. And so we go back to the original statement said much more with conviction now. God really is good to his people. Let's dive into the detail. First then, in verse 1. God is good to Israel, to his people, to those who are pure in heart. This is a statement of personal faith. And we sense that Asaph really means it, despite what is to follow. And we too, with probably not much difficulty, probably be able to agree with that. We say, yes, okay, intellectually, I do believe in God. And I do believe he's good and that he loves us. And that's a good start. But 
And can't you just feel a butt coming up here? Experience seems to contradict this. When I look at what's going on out there, when I see the suffering of all those innocent people and the way the big guys get away with it, there's not a shred of evidence to support the notion that God is good and that he cares. And so I do struggle with belief at times. It's all very unsettling, says Asa, and it's almost made me lose my faith. It's very difficult, this life of faith. It's like treading on very slippery ground. When I look at all those wicked people living the life of Riley, I actually feel quite envious. As he says in verses 4 and 5, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They glide through life without a care in the world. Or this is how it seems. And it's not just their material success that troubles Asaph. Look at their attitude, he says in verses 6 to 9. Their prosperity gives them a sort of self-sufficiency. And this results in a host of shortcomings. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their evil imaginations have no limits. He really lays it on, doesn't he? They are scoffers. They are malicious. And worst of all, they think they know better than God. They set their mouths against the heavens. They think they have no need of God. And so they think they can do it on their own. And so their tongues, in, in the ESV, it's got a lovely picture, their tongues strut through the earth. It's one of the pictures of their tongues strutting because we don't need God. And so we have the final summary of this section. Behold, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing their wealth and they seem to get away with it. You can almost hear the writer saying, and we're probably thinking it too, what are you doing, God? Can't you see what's happening? Why are you allowing this? And so he begins to doubt that there's a God of love and justice. And perhaps we do too. You don't really believe in this God, whispers an inner voice. How can you? Isn't it just wish fulfilment? And Asaph's bitterness comes to a head in the third part of the psalm, verses 13 and 14. So why bother? If life is really like this, if it's all been in vain that I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, why should I bother? Look at me. I've been trying to live a truly good life. I've kept my tax affairs clean. My sexual conduct is without reproach. My whole life is given up to serving you, both in my job and in what I do outside my work. And furthermore, not only have I got nothing out of it, I've actually been going through rather a tough time recently. Is this how you treat your friends, Lord? Do we ever have those fleeting thoughts? Do we ever ask, are we kidding ourselves? If we do, it can be very troubling. And Asaph is clearly troubled, not the least because he feels he's letting other people down. If I'd spoken out like that, he says in verse 15, I would have betrayed your children. If I really meant this, aren't I letting down all those weary colleagues of mine who give their lives so complainingly in God's service? If I talk about my doubts, 
I might perhaps underline their faith. When you have doubts, it can be a very lonely place. But hold on a minute. Let's have a look at verses 17 to 20. Things are very different, seen from God's perspective. This was troubling me, says Asaph, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. If you were in the habit of marking your Bible, this would be a great sentence to mark. Because it's the pivot on which the whole psalm swings. Things seemed all wrong until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw things completely differently. It was as if scales had been lifted from my eyes. There's a total paradigm shift. My husband and I really enjoy opera. And a few weeks ago, we were given the opportunity to join a group of people being shown round at the Colosseum. Now, if you're like me, when you're at the theatre, you're con- concentrating on the performance, not what's going on backstage. And when we walked through the little door, which leads from the front to the back, you could hear almost a gasp, a gasp from the group of people we were with. First, because of the sheer size of the place. The area at the back is vast, like an iceberg. It's much bigger than the bit you can see. And there's an astonishing array of pulleys, weights, counterweights, wheels, ramps, lifting gear, even flying gear, lighting, high-tech equipment, scenery. And then there's an enormous area consisting of dressing rooms, rehearsal rooms, a canteen, and even a wig room. Seeing all this made me understand that what you actually see on the night of the performance is only a tiny part of what's actually going on. And the world's a bit like that stage, that bit we see at the front. It's as if we're just the audience and we just see the front bit. But the Bible encourages us to look backstage to see what's really going on. And indeed, this is one of the great themes of the Bible. If I can just digress for a minute, the contrast between the the seen and the unseen. So that's that wonderful story in Kings where Elisha's servant wakes up one morning to find they're surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha prays that his eyes will be opened. And his eyes are opened and he sees that all around on the hills are God's chariots and horsemen. Then there's Job dealing with all his difficulties. And right at the end of that wonderful book, God opens his eyes and he sees that he's only a bit part in a much bigger story. The Apostle Paul sums all this up in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is not seen. Because the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So back to our psalm, and we see from verse 11 onwards, there's a complete change in tone. From the perspective of God's sanctuary, Asaph begins to see a bigger picture. It's as if he says, ah, now I get it. He sees, if you like, what's going on backstage. He now sees these people, the powerful ones, for what they really are. And furthermore, he can see where they're heading. It was only when I went into God's sanctuary, when I was overwhelmed by the presence and the majesty of God, that I discerned their true end. These people are going nowhere. 
They're the ones on slippery ground. All the wealth and power they have is a dream. They'll slip away and they'll wake up to the terrifying reality that actually they have absolutely nothing. Compared to the greatness and glory of God, all their baubles are mere phantoms. This is a bit humbling. When the psalmist sees things from God's perspective, he realises how mistaken he's been. And so finally, in verses 23 onwards, we come back full statement to this full circle to the statement that was made at the beginning. God really is good to his people. Far from doing nothing for him, the psalmist now understands that God is continually with him, probably even when he wasn't aware of it, holding his right hand, guiding him through his life, and that in the end he will see God's glory. He now sees that it's not the pretty trinkets of this world that give him peace, security, and a sense of direction. It's God. And he also sees that in contrast to the experience of the godless described earlier, whom he'd been tempted to envy, but who are going nowhere, this security will last beyond this life and forever. And so he's able to say in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And this is not now a piece of academic theology. This is something he can say with huge integrity, having sweated over it and worked it out. And so we end as we began with the statement that it is good to be near God, indeed so good that he will tell others about him. The writer's been round full circle, but through the fire of self-pity and doubt, his faith is the stronger and more genuine for it. How very relevant this psalm is for us today. It's so easy, isn't it, to despair when we see the triumph of evil over good. It's so easy to doubt whether God really is there and whether he's loving and powerful. How do we, like Asaph, get a true perspective on what is really going on? Well, perhaps we could look back again at verse 11. As we've seen, the psalmist was experiencing inner turmoil. He was on the point of giving up his faith, of thinking it had all been a waste of time, until, verse 11, until he entered the sanctuary of God, the holy place. It was there that he saw things in true perspective. We too, who follow on, need to spend more time in the sanctuary to meet with God, to spend time with him on a daily basis and listen to what he's saying through his word. We need to work out today what the equivalent of going to the sanctuary is. We need to create the time and the space to come into God's presence. Go into your room, said Jesus, and close the door and pray to your Father. It's only as we spend time with God in the hidden part of our lives that we'll be begin to see backstage. We'll learn with Paul to look at the unseen, not the seen. And as we do this, we, who've been perplexed by the same questions as Asaph, will begin to have the scales lifted from our eyes. Of course, we'll never have all the answers, but we'll begin to see the world's values for what they are and to understand that the people who are so caught up in them are going nowhere. And there's more. 
because we have a tremendous advantage over Asaph. We have something much better than the temple. When Christ died on the cross, the curtain that was in the temple, guarding the most holy place, where God was thought to reside, that curtain was torn in two, showing us that Christ's death made access to God available to everyone who called on his name. So for we who come after verse, after, verse 11 could read, I was tempted to think like this until I went into the sanctuary of God, now fully open to me, a sinner, through what Christ did on the cross. At the beginning, I mentioned my friend who is dying of cancer. She has a peace and a radiance about her that is beyond price. To be held in God's hands, to be given his peace, to know his love, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, and to know that at the end of our lives, as the psalm says, we will be taken into his glory. These things are of more value than all the world's treasures put together. May we all know these truths deep down in our hearts. And the next time we find ourselves beginning to doubt, let us meet with God at the foot of the cross, from where we'll be able to say with Asaph, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.